Well, good morning, Portico Church. And uh, for those of you who may be new joining us for the first time, welcome. Really glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, so Jason Connor, the lead pastor, he sent out a message to the church a couple days ago, but in case you didn't receive that, especially if you are new, uh, as he shared to the church body, so he and his wife Christy were caring for some family members, and as they were in the process of doing that, doing that they contracted COVID, and so they are quarantining currently, and also uh, Jason exposed the pastoral staff to it before he had symptoms and realized he had it, and so if you could please be praying for Jason Christie and their family and for the pastoral uh, and for the pastoral staff as we also care for them uh, however we can. And for me, it's a joy to come in and fill in for the, port, port, for the Portico elders. So if you don't know me, my name is Steve, and I was a member of Portico for, for years uh, before I ended up becoming a pastor, and then Portico sent us out to start a new church in Arlington called Doxology Church. And so always love getting to come back and and worship with you guys. And so go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of First Peter. That's where we'll be this morning. First uh, Peter chapter 2. And we're going to be in verses 9 to 10. So First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. It's toward the end of your Bible, um, right before 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. So let me read for us, and then I'll, I'll jump in. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word to us. So this book uh, written by, written by, is written by Peter, so he was one of Jesus' closest friends, and in this passage right here, Peter is talking, he's, he's writing to Christians who are experiencing suffering and marginalization in their culture, and in these two verses right here, he gives a uh, really a magnificent description of the church. And if you know Peter, uh, this is interesting because Peter had a fraught relationship with the church where he often thought he was better than other people in the church. He, he was very arrogant. But yet then Jesus does his work on him and it changes Peter. And so what Peter's saying here, if I can sum up this passage in one way, is Peter's saying, your view of the church is too boring and, and it's far too small. It's far too small and far too boring. And I think this is a, a needed text for where we are today, especially as we're in the midst of COVID and a lot of other things going on that can make us, in even subtle ways that we don't realize, you know, not, not value the gathered body of believers and keep people at, you know, at arm's length. And so um, as I was thinking about this for me, how, like, how we engage with the church, it often looks something like this. So <clears throat> before I became a pastor, I worked in software. And I was interviewing for this technology firm that's fairly sizable in scope, and I was at the point in the interview process where, you know, you go to the, you go to the building and you do a, a day-long interview where you meet a lot of the staff and, and so forth. And so it's at, the, it's at the start of the day, and I'm in the kitchen area where people are getting their coffee and, and eating breakfast, and I'm talking with some of the employees, and as I'm there, this, this guy walks into the kitchen, and he's wearing shabby workout clothes. He's pretty sweaty because he just finished a workout. He has a towel draped over his shoulder, and if I'm being honest, he's a little dopey looking, and he comes up to me and he goes, oh, are, are you the new recruit? 
And I go, yes, I am. And, and then I just turn around and I start you know, talking with the other employees because you know, those are the people that I need to build rapport with and they're gonna have a say in if I get hired or not. But sweaty workout man keeps trying to talk to me. So finally I'm like, okay, yes, I will, I will grace this guy with my presence. And so I, I turn around and I start talking with him, but I'm not really that engaged. And then finally, this is one of the times where my mouth moved faster than my brain. I just said something to the effect of, oh, so are you one of the you know, junior developers here or something? And he goes, oh, no, I'm John. I'm the CEO. And I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, and one of the people over by the coffee machine, she just starts burst out laughing. And I'm like, can we please rewind the past 10 minutes? And see, what happened? So I was in the presence of somebody of immense significance and, and influence. Um, but because I thought they were somebody smaller than what they were, so to speak, I didn't engage with him in a manner that was fitting for his station. And this guy, I, he's written award-winning books on data mining. He was directly appointed by President Bush to guide technology for national security. But I thought he was just, you know, someone who, I didn't, he didn't really have anything to offer me in the moment, even though he had the greatest say in whether or not I was hired, but I didn't realize who he was. And in a similar way, what Peter's saying here is, yes, I'm sure you have your three, five, six, seven favorite people in the church who, you know, you, you get each other and you like to spend time with, but for a lot of the people in the body, you view them as really, they don't have much more to offer you than, a, you know, some dopey looking sweaty dude who just finished a workout. It seems like, you know, why, why would I engage with that person? And Peter says, you have no idea the significance of each person in your local church and the purpose that God has for you, not just as an individual, but for you as a gathered body of believers. Because Jesus doesn't just save you as an individual, but he calls you into a family. And so let's look at what Peter flushes out here about the identity of the church and the purpose of the church under just under those two, under those two main headings. So first, the identity of us, like the significance that we have as believers. And then number two, what is our purpose as our church? Because it's, it's huge. Okay, so first, what's our identity? So verse nine, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So as Peter writes this, uh, this is very similar language to what is used in the book of Exodus chapter 19. And when you hear you know, Exodus, Old Testament, don't immediately zone out or think, okay, this is just academic information about something that doesn't matter. No, the Old Testament people of God are in your family tree. And so when you learn more about them, you, you learn more about God and who you are if you are following Jesus because you're in their spiritual family tree. And what's going on in Exodus chapter 19 is this is right after God liberated the Israelites from slavery by grace, and then he takes them to Mount Sinai, and he says, now that I've saved you and rescued you, chapter 19, verse, beginning in verse 5, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, same language, right? So what's Peter saying here? What he's saying is, when God brought the Israelites out of slavery, he told them, now that I've redeemed you, how you're supposed to live in terms of your ethics and your words are supposed to attract the nations to me. You're supposed to be a people that looks different and sounds different. 
But what happened is, is the people of Israel, they failed in their mission to resemble God and glorify God. And so God sent the person of Jesus to do what Israel couldn't do and didn't do. Jesus was faithful to God. And what Peter's saying now is, if you are following Jesus, now you and every person in your local church, you're the new Israel, or you're, you're, the, Isra- you're, the, you're the church that Israel always should have been, and this new covenant built on Jesus Christ, the foundational stone, which is what Peter says a, a, a few verses ago. He's saying, now you guys are called to be a light to the nations and point people to God. So that's the context for this, and he says, but before you worry about the things that you need to do, you need to know your identity because you have no idea the significance of the people around you. And so he says, you're a chosen race. So each of these are, are so rich, uh, but I'll, I'll do my best to summarize each one very briefly. So first, you're a chosen race, so you're chosen. Now, something that I hear sometimes when I'm talking with people who aren't Christians, and I, I hope uh, there are some of you uh, tuning in with us who aren't believers as well, uh, sometimes what I hear is, you know, just one of the things I don't get when I, especially if it's more of like a caricatured version of a Christian on social media or TV or something, is, you know, like Christians think they're so special. Because they're like, yeah, I'm chosen by God, and, you know, I'm the one living a moral and righteous life. And so I, I get the sense that Christians think they're better than other people. But notice what Peter says here, and this is what one commentator pointed out. He doesn't say, you're a choice people, right? Like, you're not a choice person. So if you were a choice person, that would imply you're chosen for the same reason why an athlete may be chosen, you know, in the first round draft. I know some of you make fun of me anytime I try to use a sports metaphor, but just go with me. Okay, like, you're not, you're not chosen because you're so intelligent and you have good taste and you're such a humble person. No, you're chosen just because of my mercy. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God's talking to Israel and he says, I didn't choose you and rescue you because you're so great. I chose you just because I wanted to love you. And what this should do in a community of people is it should give you a, an incredible humility. Because what happens is, is when you harbor bitterness towards somebody, or even when you keep somebody, maybe you're not overtly aggressive, but you just keep somebody at arm's length, what you're saying implicitly is, I'm a choice person. But you're, you had to be chosen, just based on God's mercy, but I'm a choice person. But when you realize, oh my gosh, God saved me just because he wanted to love me, this should make you move toward others in your community, even those you don't understand, even those who have wronged you, because God chose you just because he wanted to love you. So this should be a community that, that uh, effuses humility in its action and should be evident to everybody around you. So he says, you're, you're not just a chosen race, though, you're a holy nation. I'll get back to royal priesthood in a little bit. He says, you're a holy nation. So holy means you belong to God, and so you're set apart, so you should look different than the world in your words and in your actions. And then he says, but you're a holy nation. So that word for nation there is the word ethnos. So when you hear the word ethnos, you think what, like ethnic group? And that's exactly what Peter's saying. He's saying, if you're following Jesus, you've been born again now into a new family line, into a new family tree. And so you now have a bond with other people in the church that goes deeper than blood, deeper than politics, deeper than temperament. And you don't lose your individuality, like in a philosophy like Buddhism, you, know, you just become one part of the whole. But no, you keep, you keep your skin color, you keep how your culture and your family have influenced you, but now the most important thing about you is God has saved you and Jesus is precious to you. And here's one of the ways this matters, because 
So I know a lot of you, and I know that you guys want to share the good news about Jesus with people who don't know him. And a lot of you, especially over the past few months, you want to see a racial reconciliation happen, right, in the church and outside of the church, because racial division, divisions in, the, in this nation have become so apparent. And, and you should care about those things. But what Peter's saying here is, first you need to look within. You need to look at yourself, and you need to look at your own church, because, so if you just, you know, you hang out with your three, four favorite people, but community group, t- discipleship group, or attending church service, you, know, you just kind of, it's like, oh, whatever, you know, if I, if I don't want to go, I don't want to go. Or even more so, like, pursuing people outside of the normal community group and, and Sunday service setting, especially those who are a, a different age than you in the church, right? because you guys do have diversity in age, people have a different temperament than you, then what you're doing, essentially, is you're calling people to reconcile outside of the church, but you're not willing to even cross the much smaller differences within the people of God, and Peter is saying, if you want people to, to be attracted to Jesus, people need to see behind your proclamation a community that's beautiful in its love, a community that's beautiful in its affection, a community that's beautiful in its depth of love for one another. And that will give credibility to the, to, to the message when they see that you are a new ethnic group together because you're a holy nation. And then he says, you're a people for his, that's God. You're a people for God's own possession. So here's what this means, knowing that you and everybody in your church are God's own possession. So it's a little bit like this. Uh, So growing up, my mom, she would write my last name, Reed, on everything I owned. So she'd write it. I don't know if any of your all's parents did this, right? Yeah, okay. Um, Yeah, so... She'd write my name on, you know, on my lunchbox, on my, on my Jansport backpack, on the tags of my clothes. Actually, just two weeks ago, I went to go put on a jacket that I've had for like 20 years, and sure enough, it had my name on it. And she did that, so if one of my things got mixed up in a pile of other stuff, people would see and they go, oh, that is a Reed's possession, right? That thing belongs to a Reed. And so um, when, when Peter says, you are God's own possession, it's as if everybody you see in the church as if God has written on them in Sharpie, this person belongs to the Most High. That changes how you view them, doesn't it? And when you combine that with Peter saying, you're a royal priesthood, so you're royal because, one, if you're following Jesus, you're in Jesus' royal lineage, but also you're, you're in the service of the great king, there's a real sense when you see the most ordinary person in your church, you should, say to, you should be thinking inside something like, hello, your majesty. And yeah, maybe that sounds a little corny, but it's true. When you actually, under, wow, this person belongs to the Most High. They are royal. That changes now how your affection toward them, how often you want to pursue them, how, how much you want to spend time with them. Okay, and then finally, you're a royal priesthood. Okay, and priesthood is... If I had to choose a favorite, it's probably my favorite of this list in terms of who we are. And so priests were, so um, one role they had was they would represent the people to God, so they would pray to God on behalf of the people. They would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. But also it went the other way, where they would represent God to the people. So they would come alongside the people and in a real way help the, the person experience the power and compassion of God in a way that they couldn't without the priests. And so when Peter says, 
through Jesus now, it's not just a few select special people in the church, not just the leaders, but you are all priests. In a very real way, there are people in your church who will not experience God and his love and compassion and mercy and justice and all those things unless you, like, take on the sacred privilege that you've been given to actually come alongside that person just in very, just very basic ways, speak the truths of God to the people in your, in your community. And one of the things that made me realize the significance of this is so I came across an interview pretty recently by an author named David Foster Wallace. So he was a brilliant author who sadly ended his own life in 2008. And David Foster Wallace, he had an obsession with connection because he knew that deep relationships were key to overcoming his own addictions and narcissism. And he said in this interview, it was in the review of contemporary fiction, he goes, we all suffer alone in the real world. True empathy is impossible. But if a piece of fiction can allow us imaginatively to identify with a character's pain, we might then more easily conceive of others identifying with our own. We become less alone inside. And you hear what he's saying? He's saying, in the real world, it's impossible for me to find somebody who really empathizes with me and really identifies with me in my pain. Because either you know, they'll judge me when they see like, who I really am inside, or even if they, they try to empathize, they don't really get me. And he says, so if in my writing, and as I write fiction, it can make me feel in a way to make me at least believe maybe it's possible somewhere, even for a fictional character <laughs> to understand my brokenness, my burdens, then I'm going to write fiction. And that's why I do it. And this haunted him that he couldn't find real connection in that type of way in the real world. But when Peter says, you guys are priests together, he's saying, what haunted Foster Wallace and what he longed for his entire life is possible. And the reason it's possible is why. He says it in verse 10. He says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So it's only the church, it's only Christians who have at the foundation of their community a people who are marked by, they have received mercy. And this quote, actually this is a quote in verse 10, and Peter is quoting the book of Hosea. And the book of Hosea, one of the themes in it is God compares us to an unfaithful spouse who despite the husband's affections to love the wife over and over and over, she continues to cheat on him again and again and again. And God says, that's how you are with me. But instead of giving you what you deserve, even though you want to be cut off from me, I'm not going to cut off myself from you. I'm going to show you mercy. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. And so even though he sees all of you, like the worst parts about yourself that you try so hard to hide from other people, he sends Jesus Christ into the world who lives on your behalf and then goes to the cross and he's judged in your place. And then he rises again from the dead to extend mercy from you and to give you life eternal. And so what happens is when you, when that hits you again or maybe for the first time, they're like, oh my gosh, Jesus sees all of me and loves me to the heavens and gave himself for me. I'm a person who's marked by mercy and so how this changes now, how you engage in community, is one, now you can actually, you can open up to other people. 
Because one, because often, oftentimes why we don't open up right, is because we want to you know, just project a particular image of us. But you're like, Jesus sees me more than any of these people here, and he loves me to the heavens, so I can invite other people in. And it's only by inviting the church in that I can experience God's mercy in this unique way. But now you are uniquely equipped to come alongside somebody else. Because if the person knows that at the heart of you, you know you've been saved by mercy, when they share something with you or they, they do something, you're not going to raise your eyebrows at them or get overly exasperated. You're not going to get like, impatient in an ungodly way with them. No, you're going to come alongside them. So this can actually be the community that Foster Wallace was looking for where you can know that there are going to be people here who are going to hold you in your brokenness and hold you in your sorrow and help you heal through the love of God in a way that cannot happen without the church because we're a royal priesthood. So that's who we are. And I I hope this is helping you see in in new light the significance of of what's going on here and how important this is. And he says, okay, but now that here's who you are, you're not called to be insular and just be a monkish community. No, what's your purpose? So what are you supposed to do now that you've been saved and now that you're in a new family? And he says that in the second half of verse 9. That you, so this is why you're all these amazing things we just talked about, <clears throat> that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I, I love that verse. And so why did God save you, not just you, but save you into a community that you may proclaim? And so <clears throat> what's extremely, what's explicitly implicit in that is you need to proclaim with your mouth what God has done, right? You need to use words. And so this is a helpful corrective for a phrase that I repeated a lot, and, or I hear, I hear repeated a lot, and I get the sentiment, but it, it goes something like this, you know, preach the gospel wherever you go, and when necessary, use words, so, and I get it, like, whoever, you know, initially, it's often falsely um, attributed to St. Francis, Assisi, but apparently it's not him. I was looking this up the other day. But a lot of people who say, like, I get it. You want to um, be careful about, and you're, maybe you're reacting against Christians who just try to jam the gospel down people's throat. But I've noticed that often the people who shout that phrase the loudest are people who never actually want to use their words to tell people about Jesus, because, so if... If being a Christian was fundamentally about a moral program where you need to do a bunch of good things, then yes, then you could proclaim the excellencies of God through your actions. But Christianity isn't a moral program. It's news. It's news about who Jesus is and what he's done and where you're going. And how do you tell somebody news? You need to use words. And so, like, how how are you supposed to tell somebody you're a sinner who can only be saved by grace, through faith, through the finished work of Christ, through your actions? Like, you know, what are you, what are you supposed to do? <laughs> no, you need to open your mouth and use words. And Peter says proclaim here. So there, there's a connotation of boldness going on. And so for a lot of you guys, um, one of the things I love is just as a community, you, you really do want to come alongside and serve people through your actions. And that, that's amazing. And you need to do that. That's why Peter says you're a real priest, Right? However, if I can lovingly challenge you, there's a number of you who goes so far with you don't want to upset the apple cart, or you know you don't want somebody to react in hostility toward you, so you just want to 
keep loving them and loving them, you know, through your actions until you know them enough to where you, you know they're not going to react negatively to the message of the gospel, that then you tiptoe into it. But Peter's saying, no, you're called to proclaim, you're called to proclaim his excellencies. And so I just want you to, to, to take a step in following this beautiful calling that Peter, who was saved by Jesus, is calling you to do where just in one of your relationships, sometime you know, during this Thanksgiving and Christmas season, as you're walking with somebody and you're asking questions about them and you're learning more of their story, just say, any, I mean anything, but like one thing you can say is, hey, I just, I've, really been enjoyed, I've really enjoyed learning more of your story and the things that have shaped you. Would you mind if I shared a little bit about me and you know, how I became the person I am today? And as you share your story, just share who Jesus is. And, and why you are the way you are because of Jesus saving you. And go from there, because we're called to, to proclaim using our words. <clears throat> but not just proclaim, he says, notice what he says, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, essentially, you're... Your main mission at the heart of what you're doing as you share with people who Jesus is isn't to try to convince people that Christianity is believable, even though it is. What you're called to do is show people that Christianity is desirable. Because it's not just that Jesus is true, but he's good. Because you're not just in relationship with brains on sticks, you're in relationship with with hearts who desire beauty and have real desires. And so a question even to ask yourself is, like, is God beautiful to you? Is, is being a Christian amazing to you? Like, when people know you're a believer, do you feel like it's something you have to apologize for? Or is it clear that this is the best news in the world and it, it's changed everything? You know, one thing that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, he, he was a Welsh minister in the mid-20th century, and he said a question that he would often ask people in his church as he was shepherding them, is he would just ask them, are you a Christian? And so let's do that now, real quick. It's not a trick, it's not a trick question. Just, you know, are you, a, are you a Christian? Just answer that question in your head. I did this with myself a few weeks ago. Are you a Christian? And what... Lloyd-Jones said, as he said, often what I would get in response is something to the effect of, yeah, I'm a Christian, or yeah, of course I'm a Christian. And what he pointed out is, if, you're, if your knee-jerk response is, yeah, of course I'm a Christian, he says, what that betrays is, there's no wonder about you. It's like there's a part of you that really does believe that God set his heart on you because you are better than other people or because you are so desirable. But when you are filled with wonder, when you realize that God's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, what your answer becomes is something like, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I can't believe it. Like, isn't that the funniest thing? Me, a Christian. Jesus actually did what he did for me. Because you're filled with wonder. And so how can we be filled with wonder at the fact that we belong to God? And so here's, here's two things that we see in this text to help try to like recapture this wonder. We tend, to be, we tend to become bored with God or bored with the church. 
So one thing that Peter says, he says, he's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So when it says God called you, what this doesn't mean is God had somebody share the gospel with you, and then, you know, like somebody who's inviting somebody like above their, above their status of pay grade to a party just kind of stands back. It's like, oh my gosh, I really hope they receive my invitation. And that's not how God called you. If God called you, then you are a Christian because what God speaks, God does. One of the examples you see in the Bible is in John chapter 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus out of the tomb. So he walks up to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And what happened? Did you just then hope it would happen? No, Lazarus rose from the dead and he came out. I remember one author saying if Jesus didn't specify Lazarus come out, all of the dead would have risen because that's the power of the words of Jesus. You, you think about Genesis 1, which this passage is reminiscent of, out of darkness into light. When God looked at the darkness of the world and spoke, let there be light, there was light, because that's the power of his words. His word is his deed. And so if in any way you find Jesus beautiful, if you follow Jesus, if this book, the Bible, is life to you in any way, shape, or form, even if you feel like you're in a weak season of life right now, that is evidence that God has looked into the darkness of your heart and said, let there be light. And you saw your need for Jesus and you went to him and received his compassion and mercy. And that should fill you with, I don't know, gratitude? Wonder? And second, something that I hope fills you guys with wonder, and it did, and it did for me as I was studying this week, is in verse 9 when he says, a people for his own possession... So the wording used here, actually, um, and we saw this in Exodus 19, which Peter is quoting, is the language is more so of your God's special possession or your God's treasured possession. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because, so think about what is a treasured possession? If you have a special possession or a treasured possession, it's the thing that you own where even if you lose everything else, you still feel rich. You still feel wealthy. And so as I'm driving home, like, there are a few things I can think about that make me feel wealthy. So I can think about the car I'm driving. It's worth not very many thousands of dollars, but it's worth, worth X thousands of dollars. I can think about the designer jeans that I own that my friend gave me seven years ago, not these ones, another pair. I can think about, uh, like, what, is, what would I not want to lose? I have, so I have a, a Google Drive folder with, hundreds of sermons in it now that I've written. I would be very sad if that folder got deleted. And actually, I think a lot of you in this church, and I know a lot of you in this church are hackers, so please don't delete that folder in my Google Drive. I'm begging you. Okay, I, I can think about, uh, we recently uh, purchased a home. I can think about my home, but you know, here's what makes me feel wealthy. And it's when I park my car and I open the door of my home and when I walk inside in the living room, I see my wife, Kelsey, and I see my 10-month-old, Titus. And a number of you know that, according to every doctor opinion and common sense, uh, Kelsey and I were not able to have a child. And then, to our great surprise, we had a child. And Titus is the 
greatest gift I never knew that I wanted, you know, him and Kelsey. And so I walk in the living room, and Titus, when he sees me, he starts laughing. I think he's probably making fun of me. But he starts laughing, and then he, he, he can crawl now. So he crawls toward me. And I, I pick him up, and I, I hold him with his head over my shoulder. And you know what I'm thinking in that moment? I think, I could lose my car. I could lose this house. That Google folder could be deleted. And I would, I'm so rich. I'm so wealthy. Why? Because he's my treasured possession. If I lost everything else but for him and Kelsey, I'd, I'd feel rich. And so when the triune God says, you are my treasured possession, what does that mean? Because God owns everything. And so when God says, you are my treasured possession, what he's saying is, I look around at all that I own and I see the snow-capped mountains, I see these sparkling oceans, I see the stars swirling around in the cosmos, I see the heavenly hosts, but it's not until I look at you and my heart swells up with joy that I feel wealthy. And I'd give anything for you, and he did. He gave up his only son. When you look at God and you say, how could somebody as big as you look at somebody as little as me and feel that rich? I, I hope it fills your heart with wonder. And he's done that for every other person in this church too. And so for you guys, Peter's call is to pursue one another in a much more proactive way in community and come together, and then as you do so, you become a, a tapestry that reflects the grandeur and grace and magnificence of God. So hear his call one more time, your identity and your purpose. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own treasured possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of he who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, I thank you for the, I don't know, um, I thank you that you love me so much and you treasure me and every person in this church, Lord, and I pray that you will help us to shrug aside any indifference we hold toward you or toward the people of God. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'll be with Portico in particular, as I know there's a lot going on right now um, with COVID and, and, and a lot of other things that are happening, uh, both within their personal lives and within their life as a church. And I pray that you will help them not to, to use some of these things that are going on externally as, a, as an excuse to keep the other people in their church family uh, at, at a distance, Lord, but they'll come together um, across dividing lines, across uh, forming new and deep relationships with the people that they're not as close with, and as they do so, that they will make a massive difference in this city as they proclaim your excellencies. And I thank you for this privilege, and I thank you for the opportunities to partner with Portico Church, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.